So I know this guy, uh, I knew, I knew this guy. He was 92 when I met him. His name was John Billington. <clears throat> and I met him when I lived in South Dakota. Jill and I, even though we're from East Texas, we spent five years up there planting churches. And, and I met this guy at church. Uh, and think about that. We were planting churches, starting new churches. And I met a 92-year-old at church. Uh, that's odd. Because usually when you're starting new churches, you're reaching these young families, young people, college students, you know. And this 92-year-old guy was coming to church week in and week out, and he was always there early. And uh, he would sit in the, the lobby of the movie theater where we met, sipping his coffee. And uh, he would just sit there while we were, everybody was buzzing around him and, you know, people saying hello, but they're setting things up and getting ready for church. And he was sitting there sipping his coffee and just smiling at people and He'd say, hey, John, how are you? And he'd go, best day of my life. And he'd always say that, best day of my life. And then one day, he told me why he wanted to come to our church. Because of all the churches he could have been a part of, certainly more traditional-looking churches, certainly more churches that might have been more his pace or style, whatever it was, he told me one day, I want to be part of this church because I don't know how many days I have left on this earth, but whatever days God gives me, I want to be a part of a church that has its rockets blazing. That was pretty cool to hear from a 92-year-old guy, a World War II vet, a guy that had really lived an amazing life all over the world, tons of incredible stories, and he said, I want to be part of a church that has its rockets blazing. Man, me too. Don't you? What does it look like for a church to have its rockets blazing? You ever thought about that? What makes a church successful? Have you thought about why you chose this church or whatever church you've been a part of? What drew you to it? Was it things like the average age, you know, that they've got people around my age or there might be a group for me or maybe it was something that drew you that you thought this church is successful because there's a lot of ministries that are available to my family or maybe it's something like the music is my style or good or whatever else. Or maybe you thought it was just that the amount of community service the church did that drew you, and you thought, that's what makes a church successful. That's why I want to be a part of that church. Well, what is it that makes a church successful to have its rockets blazing, like my friend John said? What glorifies God for a church to be successful? That's the question we ought to be asking, right? Not just what, what do we think. What does God think makes a church successful? What glorifies Him? Well, I think in the book of Colossians, he reveals that to us through a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays, and he's praying this prayer and, and telling the Colossian church about his prayer of thanksgiving for them. And in this kind of uh, talking about why he's thankful for the Colossian church, he lays out what they've been doing that makes it their rockets blaze, that makes them effective, that makes them successful. Now, Paul hadn't met the Colossians, but he had heard about them and was hearing about them. And so what he tells them in Colossians chapter 1 uh, reveals really what, what, what had their rockets blazing, what, what was making them effective, what was making them successful. And it can teach us today what's important for our church. Why do we need to be successful? What does God want for us? How does God want us to measure our success so it says this in Colossians chapter one. If you've got a Bible, you can look at it with me. If not, we'll have the words on the screen. You can follow along there. <clears throat> it says in Colossians one, verse three, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Well, this is kind of a, still part of the introduction for Paul, where he's introducing this letter. Like I said, he hasn't met these people. He's still kind of, kind of a, doing a little soft opening to them, but he says he's thankful for them. This is the Apostle Paul. This is a guy who wrote two-thirds of our New Testament. This is the guy who God used almost single-handedly to spread the good news of Jesus to the known world outside of Judaism in the first century. I mean, this dude has, is a pretty important guy in the kingdom of God, and he says of these people in Colossae that he's never met, every time, always, when I pray, I am thanking God for you. So what is it that Paul was so thankful for about the Colossians? And what is it maybe that we could glean from in order to glorify God with our church and what makes us an effective church? So two things, because it really boils down to this. By the way, if you're reading this passage and you're following along and you're going, I don't know, that just looks like a lot of churchy words to me, you know, like hope, faith, love, grace, truth, gospel, you know, all, and you're not really sure how to piece it all together, um, that's okay because we're gonna boil it down to a really simple point and I would just tell you that it's normal to read this, these few verses in particular and kind of go, what? Because in the original language, it's actually one sentence. So it's all one big run-on sentence and then our translators in the English have figured out how to break it up and so if you read it and you go, I need to read that again, that's okay, read it again, you know, take your time. But it really all boils down to these two things, that to make our church successful, defining the win for our church, right, is that as the gospel grows in us, it must also grow out of us, or out from us. As the gospel of Jesus Christ grows in us, it must also grow out from us. That's it. That's the win. That's what makes this church incredible in Colossians. In the church at Colossae, this is what makes Paul thankful for the church at Colossae, and it's what we can do to glorify God as well. To be a church that as the gospel of Jesus Christ grows in us, it also grows out from us. Now let me show you how we get to that from this passage. How does it all boil down to this? Well, like I said, it's one big run-on sentence, but the climactic point of that sentence is one word, gospel. And you see it at the end of verse five, it says, you've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The word of truth, the gospel. And so this is why it's all the main thing. Because the gospel is the story that you and I are a part of. This is why our church exists. It's the good news that Jesus sits on the eternal throne of God's kingdom. That from the beginning of time when God created the world, that he had a plan to redeem all things, to make all things new again and restore all things into himself. To make everything perfect and right and righteous again. 
So from creation to restoration, you might know the story, but some interesting things happened. Like for example, the first humans chose to disobey God and sin entered the world. Things got twisted for humans. We, we started seeing God in a different way. We started seeing ourselves in a different way. We started living with a twisted version of reality. That's what sin does to us, and it broke our relationship with God. We were separated from God. But then the story wasn't over. God always had a plan, and his plan included Jesus, the Savior of the world, the King of heaven, who would step into time and space as a man, fully God and fully man, and become the sacrifice for sin. Because we had to be connected back to God. We couldn't get back to God on ourselves. He had to be something that he did for us. And so Jesus became the sacrifice for us. And then we know that one day, even though Jesus died and was resurrected and then ascended to heaven, that one day he will return to make all things new again. And so the gospel is this big story of eternity that God has invited us to be a part of. Now, a lot of times when we say gospel, We think about just that one little sliver in there where Jesus died for our sins. And that's important. It certainly is important. And it's a huge part and piece of the whole puzzle. But it's not the whole picture. The gospel is this whole story that God has invited us to be a part of. Now, how do we view in East Texas the gospel? How do we view Jesus? Do we see him? Is our church living as if Jesus is the king of eternity? As if all things are under his authority and we're part of his plan to restore all things to God? Well, I think a lot of people in East Texas are familiar with Jesus. A lot of churches would proclaim belief in Jesus. But most East Texans don't see Jesus as the supreme thing. We just see Jesus as one of many things that we love. And this is actually what Paul is writing to the Colossians about. The entire book of Colossians is about how Jesus is supposed to be the supreme thing, not just one of many things. You see, in Colossae, there was a popular uh, theology and philosophy that was developing. And it was sort of a mixed bag, like a shake and bake kind of thing. You know, you put in some paganism, you put in some Judaism, and you put in some Christianity, and you shake it all up, and then you get what they sort of had as their popular philosophy, theology of the day. And Paul was writing against that. He was saying, that's not right. That's not of God, because that gives Jesus a place, but not the supreme place, right? And Jesus must have the supreme place, because he's the eternal king of heaven. Right? This is the gospel, the good news. And churches have been invited to be a part of this good news story to elevate Jesus to the supreme thing. What well, turns out right here in East Texas, 2,000 years later, we're still battling the same twisted ideology that Jesus is just one of many. You know how I know that? I was in downtown Marshall the other day and walking by a store window and I saw a t shirt. And the t-shirt had on it a bunch of words. At first it said, Jesus, right here. And then as you look at the other words, it said, Willie, which I can only guess means Willie Nelson. Whataburger, Bluebell, Bucky's, and on and on and on. 
boots. <laughs> you, know? you go, does Jesus belong on that t-shirt as just one of the things that kind of makes us Texan? No, he is so much bigger. He is not just a place, he's got to have the supreme place. And so Paul's saying, hey, to you Colossians, you've got this figured out in your church. The gospel, the word of truth, the gospel came to you and you've taken hold of it. And we see the two things that really are indicators that we've taken hold of the gospel, that we've become part of the big story, that the gospel is growing in us. They happen right here, it's two words, truth and grace. Truth and grace. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of John, and you flip over into the story of Jesus written by, uh, by John, the disciple that Jesus loved, and John chapter one, uh, John talks about how Jesus has been there since the beginning. That Jesus has always existed, that even creation is because of Jesus and his presence there. But in John chapter one, he says this in verse 14, he says, the word, speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And we see how these two things, grace and truth, are the indicators that the Colossian church is winning. They have actually plugged in to their God-given purpose to be part of the story of eternity. The gospel has come to them, the word of truth, and they've received it by God's grace. Look at what he says when he talks about the word of truth, the gospel. He says in verse six that it has come to you. Now this flies in the face of popular thinking today. Now you know, and you've probably heard what most people in America, even right here in East Texas, would say about truth today, that truth is relative. That truth comes from within. That truth is something that you can discover inside yourself. And its hallmark phrase is something like, just live your truth, right? You do you. And this is how people live. But the story of God is different, and Paul is saying, and he's clarifying this for us, this isn't something that came from within the Colossian church, but they recognized the word of truth, the truth being Jesus Christ himself, came to them. Truth isn't coming from within, truth is something that comes from above. Truth is something that is eternal. Truth comes to us, not from us. Now, people will go, well, I don't know. I mean, it seems that people are figuring out their lifestyle and they want to, you know, they're living out their own truth and it seems to be working for them and it's kind of definitely the popular thinking of the day. And let me just tell you this. I don't think truth that comes from within us is trustworthy. And ultimately, it's not even truth and it breaks down. I wonder if you've ever been in a, a place where maybe as a kid you told a lie and then you had to hang on to that lie and keep telling it or else you would be found out. And then you came to the point where you kind of forgot what really happened. Anybody ever been there? 
you told a lie so many times that you sort of started to believe it was true. And maybe that didn't happen to you, but something that probably did happen to you, I want you to think of maybe when sometime in your life when somebody insulted you. Somebody said something wrong about you. Somebody said something mean about you. Somebody said something untrue about you. What's interesting about the way our brains work is that you can remember those things a lot more clearly than you can remember other things. In fact, if I ask you to remember when someone insulted you or said something or called you a name, you probably in your mind, no matter how old you are, are transported back to that moment and you can picture those people and you can think about what happened on that day and you can remember what that person said to you and you can remember how it made you feel. And then you've taken what they said, even though it was untrue, and you repeated it in your head over and over and over again and it became part of your story that you were telling yourself until eventually you were living as if it were true. So someone said you weren't worth a flip. And eventually you came to believe that maybe you weren't. Well, did that make it true? No. It was untrue from the start. But this is the danger of thinking that truth comes from within, whether us or whether it comes from another person, because truth can't be something that comes from within fallen and limited people. Truth has to supersede people. Truth has to supersede time. Truth has to supersede space. It has to hold up no matter what comes against it. And the reality of the scripture is that the story of God in all of eternity, Jesus is the word of truth and he always holds up. He can never be disproved. He can never come untrue. He was there from the beginning and he'll be there at the end. And as we're part of the story, the story of truth, recognize that for the gospel to grow in us, we have to see that it's true because of Jesus. I love what Pastor Andrew said last week in his sermon on the first couple of verses is that, hey, Jesus wasn't the one lost. We didn't find him, he found us. (laughs) Truth came to the Colossians. They recognized that. But then what happened was they were immediately transformed? No. They weren't changed until something happened in them and it was what Paul describes at the end of verse six when he says, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You came to truly appreciate God's grace. You see, there's one, one thing to know the facts of the gospel. To know the X's and the Y's and have your I's dotted and your T's crossed about what the Bible says about salvation. And it is a whole nother thing to experience the grace of God. That's the transformative work And so as we see Paul saying to them, hey, I'm cheering you on, I'm thanking God for you because you've heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that's come to you and you've received it and you have appreciated truly the grace of God and it's changing you. The gospel's working in the church of Colossians. It's what's making them successful and effective as a church. 
seeing the truth of God in Jesus and experiencing his grace. Because you know what happens when you need grace? You experience truth as you experience the truth about yourself. Anybody ever faced the hard truth about yourself? You look in the mirror and you go, okay, compared to Jesus' perfection, I don't even come close to measuring up. And you start to see yourself for who you really are, that you're unsorted, that you're unlovable, that really you don't measure up, that you're undeserving of God's love wholly, and that's what makes the experience of God's grace so much sweeter is because you know you don't measure up, but God still chooses you. God still laid his life down for you. God still became a sacrifice for you so that you could be connected to him in relationship for eternity again. That's grace. I love what my pastor growing up said about grace. He used it like an acronym. So G-R-A-C-E, he said, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. So we can know God in a personal way because of his grace. Ephesians 2 said that it's by grace you have been saved, not by works so that no man can boast. So when you see the truth of Jesus and it comes into your heart and transforms you by his grace, we are at the point where we can start really doing what God wants us to do as a church. But if we would just live among the rest of the East Texans who have an affinity for Jesus and Jesus is at the same level as Bucky's, then you know what? We're gonna miss it. We're gonna miss it. Jesus has to have the place not only in the story of God, but also in our lives. And he does it by his grace, truth and grace. That's how the gospel works in us. And so that's kind of the linchpin. But what happens when the gospel begins to work in you is that it must also work out from you. The gospel has to work out from us. And this is what's happening in the church at Colossae. And it can happen here too. So go backwards a little bit into verse four. And Paul gives three visible things, three, three fruits, you could say, of how, the, of, of how the work of the gospel that was happening in the church of Colossae was expressing itself out from the church of Colossae. Three words, faith, love, and hope. Now this pattern of, of of building something inward so that something can grow out of it is actually, it's a pattern that God uses throughout the scripture. One of my favorites was a theme verse for me in 2020. I don't know if you remember what happened in 2020, but the pandemic hit and people disappeared from church buildings and uh, we were all on Zoom and it was just like, what are we doing? And we kind of lost a lot of what we thought was important as a church. And uh, so I was searching the scriptures as a pastor going, what are we doing? What's going on here? And I came across this passage in Isaiah. I want to show it to you. It, it's, a, it's a promise to, uh, to the Israelites who were living in exile that God will restore them to their land again, to the promised land again, uh, revealing his grace to them in a new way. And it says this. It says in, in Isaiah uh, that the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And it's just this cool picture 
that though they had been removed from their land, that God would bring them back. And not only would he bring them back, but he would do a work in them that rooted them there, that established them, that made them immovable, so that then they could be expressive of what God was doing in them and bear fruit outward or upward. So as the gospel works in us and we recognize truth and grace and we're transformed by it, God is digging those roots deep. Our church, we're planting roots in what God is doing so that then he can bear fruit out from us with faith, love, and hope. And these are the fruits that Paul says he's so thankful for hearing about these things for the church at Colossae. And these are things that truly make a difference in the kingdom of God. So let's talk about these things. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ. I've heard of your faith in Christ. What you need to know about this is that what faith is, is trust in something other than yourself to do something you cannot do on your own. Faith in Jesus for the salvation of your soul is faith in Jesus, not faith in yourself, not faith in your faith, And sometimes people doubt, they go, I don't know if I have enough faith to be saved. But the analogy is, is, this is a great analogy that it's like sitting on a tree branch. When you're sitting on a tree branch, whether you fall off of that branch or not has nothing to do with your faith in your ability to sit on the tree branch, but it has everything to do with your faith in the tree branch to hold you up. And so faith is putting our trust in something else in order to accomplish for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. So how does that apply then to our church? How do we know that this can help us define the win for us as a church? If if we could be like the church at Colossae with faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we know that there was a lot of competition in Colossae for what faith should be in. You know, there was this paganism, there was Judaism, there was Christianity. Jesus had a place, but not the place. But Paul is commending them because their faith was in Jesus Christ. And so that made a a difference spiritually for them because it meant that they were trusting in Jesus alone and in nothing else. When it comes to faith and trust, what you trust is evidenced by what you're known for. What you trust in is evidenced by what you're known for. Paul had heard about their faith in Jesus. They were known for that. That was the evidence that their faith was in Jesus, is that that's what they were known for. What are we known for? What is Moberly and Marshall known for? Are we known for great music? Are we known for being close to Travis Elementary? Are we known for you know, having a great church staff of kids ministry and, and, and youth ministry? And are, we, are we known for having young adults or college students? Are we know, what are we known for? And then let me ask you this question. Is our faith in those things for the success of our church rather than Jesus? Here's what I mean. If all those things were stripped away today, if we didn't have a roof over our head, if we didn't have lights or screens, if you didn't have a church staff, if you didn't have a kids ministry class for your kids, would we still be here celebrating and glorifying Jesus together? 
if all of those things were stripped away, would we be here for Jesus? That's a hard question. But to win as a church, to glorify God, would be to be like the church in Colossae, where we would be known for our trust in Jesus. Where we would be the church that people look at and go, it doesn't matter what they have or don't have, they keep proclaiming Jesus no matter what. Is that us? That could be how we win. The second thing is this, he says, he commends them for their love for all the saints. Their love for all the saints. Two things about this, the first is the word love. That you need to know about, the word love here is the word that means a selfless, sacrificial love. Now most love in the church isn't selfless and sacrificial. Most love in the church is what the Bible would call a phileo love. That's the Greek word that we get the word Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love, right? Most love is like that. And what do I mean? I mean like when you walk past someone in the lobby and you go, hey, I'm so-and-so, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. And we stay at this surface level, that's phileo love. That's like, I'm glad we're in the same room together, but I'm not really gonna give up my life for you. (laughs) This is a hard truth, right? We see people in Kroger that we go to church with and we go, oh, hey, how are you doing? Great, good to see you. Things are going okay? Yeah, things are going great. And we never move past that. That's because we have mostly a phileo, a brotherly love. But what God is calling us to is a self-sacrificial love, a love that gives of myself for others. This happened to me last week. Uh, this, uh, if, if you were here last week, you know that I was really struggling with my back and uh, I'm young, but I got back issues like you wouldn't believe. I'm, I'm like a 92 year old with my back. And so uh, I was just really down on it. And, uh, and, and actually two things happened to me last week. A family from my connect group met two needs in my life. Um, we have these groups of people that meet together outside of this room in smaller groups. And if you're not in one, this is a great chance for you to jump in one and join one and be part. It's so important to have community of love and support, self-sacrificial love for one another. Um, Jill was gone, my wife Jill was gone on Monday night at a ministry event and I had the kids by myself and I was in a lot of pain. I didn't ask for it, this family just said, we're bringing you dinner. I was like, oh man, that's huge, that's a huge blessing. Later that night, Jill had a tire blowout. <laughs> uh, you can't make this stuff up, it just like was kept piling on. And so who do we call? I texted a few people from my group. Hey, Jill had a tire blowout. I need to go help her. Can anybody come sit with my kids? They're asleep. Can anybody just sit at my house? Boom, same family, showed up five minutes later, met the need. They gave of themselves so that our needs could be met. This is the kind of love Jesus is talking about. And this is the kind of love that makes our church glorify God. It's what the Colossians were living a self-sacrificial love, not just for some people, but for all people. For every single person in Christ, it didn't matter if they were in the in crowd or the out crowd. It didn't matter if they were political or not. It didn't matter if they had money or if they had nothing. In the Colossian church, he said, I've heard of your love, your sacrificial love for all the saints. And so the question for us is, are we a church that stays at the surface level and we kind of have that brotherly love for one another or are we a church that's gonna get into deep sacrificial love, not just for the people closest to us or the people we like, but for all 
of us. And what does that look like? Well, I would just tell you, you can't do that just by coming to Sunday morning and and experiencing worship together. You, You just can't. I wish I could tell you a great way to do that so you can just experience Sunday mornings, but what I believe God is calling us to as a church family is deeper relationships, deeper roots. As we experience the truth of Jesus and his grace transforms us, we need to be together in sacrificial, loving community meeting each other's needs. And so I'm just gonna put this out there for you and saying as your pastor, this is a next step that you should take to be in a group like that. And you can take that step even today. We actually just recently put some cool little tools in the back of the room. There are a couple iPads back there and they are locked and loaded on our Connect Group webpage. So anytime you're in this room, you can walk back there and you can actually look and see two ways. You can scroll through and see if there's a group that meets in a time and place that might be convenient to you or you can hit the little map icon and you can look at a map of Marshall and see where our groups are meeting and choose a group and grab an email address or talk to one of our uh, prayer partners back there who can help you plug in to a group. It's a step we gotta take. But their faith in Christ that if they had nothing left, they would still proclaim Jesus and they had a love for one another that was self-sacrificial, was all motivated by the hope that they had for eternal life. The hope that they were a part of something bigger. The hope that no matter what happened in Colossi, they were part of God's overall story of eternity. From beginning to end, they were living out the gospel, making the kingdom of God come here and now. This is what the Colossian church was doing, and this is what we can do too. We can live with the hope for a good, good future. The hope that is number one, reserved for us in heaven, So you need to know. You need to know that when your faith is in Jesus Christ, He is the one that holds your salvation. He is the one that keeps it. And and it's like Pastor Andrew says, it's like it is stronger than Fort Knox. You can't lose it, and he's not letting go of it. So when your salvation is in Jesus Christ, you can trust that that reservation is held for you in heaven. And it's not just a place you're going, but we say this all the time, the kingdom of God is not just where we're heading, it's what we're living. And just like Jesus said in Mark chapter one that he came to bring the kingdom of God near, we are making the kingdom of God a reality in the here and now as partakers and participants in the good news of Jesus, the big story of the gospel. And so our hope that's reserved for us in heaven means that we are now focused, laser focused as a church on what God is doing in the big story of eternity in our little corner and pocket of East Texas, okay? So what this means is that we aren't dissuaded or frustrated or anything else by our past. That if we've had negative things in our church history, whether Moberly or your personal church history, if you've had negative things, what, what, what God is saying is that what glorifies him is that if we would not let those things distract us, but we would stay laser focused on what God is doing in the story of eternity, and that we would be part of making his kingdom a reality in the here and now, then we live in the hope that's reserved for us. That even if we have positive experiences in the past, that the way things used to be were great. 
we're still not latching onto those things because God is on the move toward eternity and we are laser focused on what he is doing and can do through us in the here and now. So this is what hope reserved for you in heaven is like. It's that Jesus holds your salvation and that we ought not to be distracted or held back by what's happened in our past, whether positive or negative, we can be part of what God is doing from this point forward into the future. We're also not dissuaded by our present circumstances we see above them. There's a difference in driving on the interstate and coming over a hill to see traffic backed up and flying in a helicopter to see traffic backed up, right? The hope of eternal life means we are above our current circumstances. It's a spiritual reality that we live in that has nothing to do with what we face right in front of us. It has everything to do with what God is doing and inviting us to be a part of. And this was described the Colossian church. This was the hope that they had, the hope reserved for them in heaven that they heard about from the word of truth, the gospel that came to them. It transformed them from the inside out. The gospel grew in them and then it started to grow out of, from them in faith, love, and hope. This is how we can be an effective church. This is how we can be a successful church. This is what glorifies God. Now can I just tell you what I didn't say? What I didn't say is that to be a great church, we gotta get a lot of people. It's just not there. It's not in the Bible. But that is how most people would describe a successful church. You may have heard that before. Lots of people in the room, lots of dollars in the budget. But that's not what God wants. That may be a byproduct at some point for somebody and some part of God's plan, but for us, we focus on not the numerical reality, the spiritual reality. So today's your first time at Moberly or you're new here, you're, you've been coming for a few weeks and haven't quite introduced yourself yet, or you're not in a group yet, whatever, the, you just need to know, you're not here for us to grow numerically. We are here for you to hear the truth of Jesus Christ, for you to experience his transformative grace so that your life can be part of something much, much bigger than you, much, much bigger than us, and that it can bear fruit, evidence of the kingdom of God at work in you through faith in Jesus Christ, that if everything else in your life and our church was stripped away, we would still proclaim Jesus. It would bear fruit in you by love for all the saints that when you show up here, you're not just walking into a building with a bunch of people, you're family, you're known, you're taken care of, you're looked after, and then finally hope that we're not worried about our past circumstances or even our present circumstances, we are laser focused on what God has for us in the future. That's what you're being invited into. You're not here just so that we can have a bigger number recorded on a paper or email somewhere. You're here because God brought you here to do a spiritual work in your life and for this church to be part of his good plan for eternity to make a difference in this world. 
that's why we're here, and that's how we win. So I'm gonna invite our band to come back, and they're gonna help us just by closing us out with a couple verses or choruses, and I wanna invite you to respond to God. I hope that you heard something new today. I hope that God tapped you on the shoulder and was like, hey, you need to pay attention to that. And while we sing this last little song, you can, I hope, just, just kind of zone in and lock into what God is trying to speak to you today. But maybe you came in today and you heard about the good news of God, that Jesus wants to restore your relationship with God. You've been separated from God by your sin and you need a savior to restore you to him, to have eternal life. You can have that through faith today. That's the good news of the gospel.